0: all right welcome to episode 31 of seize the moment podcast and today we welcome back a very special guest mr keith frankish welcome welcome
1: hey keith welcome back
2: thank you for having me back
1: so thank you so much for coming back on it's a pleasure So, Keith, today we want to talk to our audience, and obviously to Alan, for all of us, right, to share in kind of the understanding of what it is to be sort of implicitly and explicitly biased. So, first of all, Keith, I wanted to ask you, what is the definition and what is the difference, the major differences between implicit and explicit biases?
2: How that is itself is quite a complicated question. Um, Let's just just start simply. Um, Let's take something like um, prejudice. You have, you have, you you have, uh, you, well, you believe that people of a certain group, might be people of a certain ethnic group, it might be people of a certain gender or whatever it is, have certain characteristics that uh, maybe they're smarter or less smart or whatever than other groups. Mm -hmm. You stereotype, you have these stereotype beliefs. Now, I guess explicit bias is when you're kind of aware of this and you let it control your behavior and your judgments about these people and you're quite aware that this is happening you say no i i don't think we should let that person do it or let's say it's a, it might be a woman say we, we i don't think women are as good at doing this as men say mm-hmm. that would be explicit bias and um, the advantage of that of course is that everybody can see what you're doing um and uh, uh, they can challenge you about it and confront you about it and perhaps you could uh confront yourself about it now implicit bias is something a lot more subtle it's um it's kind of bias that sort of operates under the radar as it were you're not you're not aware that you have it Mm -hmm. but your behavior and the way you treat people the judgments you make the way you respond to people manifests it so maybe you would say absolutely i don't think women are less qualified for this kind of job uh, 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 than men are absolutely every bit as good Uh, but still when it maybe comes to making to hiring people or writing references for people, whatever it might be, you don't select the women as often as the men. You don't write as strong references for them and so on. Uh, and this could show up in all kinds, in all, in, in, in all aspects of your behavior, perhaps in such things as, you know, how you, you know, your, your posture when talking to someone, do you seem more sort of, like kind of keep a distance from them maybe. I am not as inclined to to confide in them um, or to trust them with simple things and so on and the the point about this is that it's implicit that it's you're not aware of it
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and the danger there of course is that that I mean and you might at the same time be saying uh, avowing uh, quite the opposite beliefs you might be saying of course women are, 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 are I was uh, capable of and this is this is this is more more of a problem in some ways because you're not aware of it. and It's harder to confront it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and the, to recognize it.
0: That's right. And and then this conflict between our explicit um, biases and our implicit biases, or what we say explicitly and what we actually how we behave implicitly, it's um, it's interesting to see this this conflict and how we sort of resolve this conflict. Because, uh, for example, in the Um, article that you shared with us Um, I did realize there was this um, a a woman I believe her name is Juliet uh, a fictional character um, who is grading her class papers and um, if asked explicitly what are her beliefs about um, the race, about the types of students uh, in in her class she may say that she treats everyone equally and this is her explicit Um, Mm -hmm. response however um maybe you know and this is fictional of course hypothetical in her grading of the papers maybe she'll be more inclined to give a good grade to maybe the white student as opposed to the black student even though explicitly she expresses that she does not feel that any sort of racial um biases right um and that's why the article is important because it's kind of highlighting this difference between this sort of explicit uh, what you would say explicitly and how you actually behave implicitly and Mm -hmm. then um, towards the end how to how to resolve that, how to override your implicit beliefs.
1: Right. And so, just to add on, and I think I definitely want to kind of ask Keith about it as well, is that when it comes to particularly explicit and implicit beliefs, we technically believe those two conflicting things at the same time. And that we even behave in those two or in the kind of ways that show or indicate that we have those two different sets of beliefs. So, from my understanding of it, and Keith, of course, please correct me if I'm wrong, that somebody who has, like, let's say, conflicting sets of implicit and explicit beliefs, that their behavior your manifests in both ways. That sometimes they act in such a way where it indicates a sense of sort of racial and social justice. But then other times they can act in certain ways that indicate the opposite of that. Keith, is that correct?
2: Yes. Um, I, I'll just mention that the Juliet example there is mm-hmm. one that uh, I quoted from a paper by Eric Schwitz Gable. So just acknowledge that. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and the, the way I came, um, I came. To thinking about implicit bias was by thinking more generally about the nature of belief, mm-hmm. not in cases where the, uh, the beliefs are, are uh, betray some kind of prejudice but just in ordinary everyday cases um, I started by thinking about and this is this was when well, I was in grad school certainly, this was quite a big debate in, in the philosophy of mind mm-hmm. what are we actually doing when we say that somebody believes something or desires something we, we, this is sometimes called folk psychology. It's the way we explain each other's behavior. We say, well, you know, he wants this and he thinks that he can get it if, if he does that. And that's why he's doing it. And we just explain and predict people's behavior. We, you, why did you, um, uh, uh, you, you expected me to be to be here to record this interview tonight? Because you knew that I believed that I'd agreed to it and I, that I wanted to do it. And so you put that together and predicted that I'd be here. And there seems that seems the obvious way to predict and explain each other's behavior and um, we can do it with animals too but it's seemed to me that when we talk about beliefs in everyday um, life we, we mean two rather different sorts of things and while it's captured partly by talking about animals um, when we uh, by thinking about animal beliefs when you think when you say that the dog my dog believes that it's um, that there's, there's there's food food has been put out for him, or that it's time for his walk. He, I'm not really su- suggesting that he's actually thought about this in some kind of explicit way. That he sort of said to himself, "Ah, food," or "Ah, mm-hmm. oh, walk time." He's just kind of <laughs> reacting in that way. He's just he's just displaying all the behaviour that is sort of going for a walk behaviour or getting food behaviour. Mm-hmm. He's not actually sort of conceptualized this thought and said it to himself. All at least that's, I'm not assuming he has. But we know that sometimes people do do that kind of thing. They, ex- they sort of, you know, consciously entertain certain thoughts and beliefs. Uh, and these affect their behavior, it seems. Mm-hmm. And so there seems to be a contrast here between something like this implicit kind of belief that just guides your behavior without you having to think about it, without having to entertain it consciously. And the sort of Conscious, reflective sorts of beliefs that that we humans certainly have, and so that and so I started trying to think about what these are, and how they're related to each other, and how each of them influences action. They I think they influence action in different ways, and that then led me into thinking about uh, what happens when one when these two conflict, and you have say a, a belief of a conscious a conscious belief that is uh, uh, unbiased, that is egalitarian, and an implicit and uh, a non conscious belief that's that's um, biased. Mm-hmm. And the story that I came um, to, it's quite a, quite a complicated one. Um, it's something like this, that the implicit belief, implicit term, belief and desire, these are kind of what these are the sort of foundations of of, uh, 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 of the mind. These are kind of what get us around the world mm-hmm. most of the time. We don't ex- need to explicitly think about things in order to sort, you know, if you, if you set out to, to, uh, to go to the shop or something like this or to go and catch a, uh, a train, you don't need to think about all the steps involved. You kind of know what to do and you just do it unreflectingly, assuming everything goes well guided by these kind of implicit beliefs and desires. It's kind of, it's knowledge that you have know-how, if you like, knowing how to engage with the world and to react to the world appropriately. And it just takes care of most things for us in a sort of animal way. But if you come up with some problem on your way, say, to the train station, if you find that the, the, the road is closed or something, that, then you might start to consciously think about alternatives and what you could do. And you might try and conjure up different you might imagine a map of the city, or you might consult your phone or something like this, and plan, consciously plan a different route, and then start acting on that. And so the idea is that this reflective kind of conscious belief kicks in when the implicit stuff uh, isn't sufficient. We just default back to this automatic way of operating, and we engage in the conscious reflective stuff only when that lets us down. So. How exactly does this conscious reflective stuff work? Is it like a completely separate sort of brain system? I mean, that seems a rather strange idea if you think that, that our minds are not all that different from those of animals. They're much more, uh, our brains are larger and they're more powerful. But, you know, we are, we, we are part of an evolutionary heritage and it seems that strange that in humans there should be some completely separate sort of reasoning system installed Mm -hmm. alongside Alongside the the old systems systems that took care of animal behavior behavior. and I don't think it requires something I think what it requires is a certain sort of use of kind of tools that we have for thinking particularly language and so what we can do when we're stuck is we can start talking to ourselves we can start asking ourselves questions Um, sometimes not not necessarily out loud we can do it in in a speech Mm -hmm. when we find the road is closed we can say what other way could I go as if we were talking to Another person. And we can then respond to the things that we say to ourselves in much the same way that we might respond to suggestions from another person. So we might say, Oh, this road is closed, where can I go? And oh, I could take such and such a street. And then we can respond to that suggestion as a kind of prompt in the way that we might respond to a suggestion from another person. Once we've accepted that suggestion, as it were, we then switch back into automatic mode and we know we're now taking the street and everything uh, follows that way. So there it is, this is a kind of activity, conscious thinking is a kind of activity. It's articulating, consciously articulating certain plans, proposals, ideas, goals, and then letting our implicit systems take those suggestions and act on them.
0: What's fascinating about that is if there's anything implicitly that you do, that let's say you wanted to change about yourself, Realizing that talking to yourself and sort of having this sort of inner dialogue or even the conscious will or motivation in order to kind of overcome, it doesn't always have to be about overcoming, but let's say in in a context of overcoming a particular bias that you may have, Mm -hmm. it's, it's fascinating that there is a way to sort of take control. Whereas opposed, you know, you might assign this to something that's automatic and something you have no control over. Mm -hmm. That actually is not the case. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, Keith, I was wondering maybe uh, if you could kind of talk about maybe how we could go about maybe overriding these uh, implicit biases. Like, let's say, for example, um, in let's say I'd like I'm I have this habit of not eating a healthy diet and i'm constantly choosing these things that are not good for me and then of course explicitly if i took into consideration uh, what is a healthy diet and things things of that nature um what's maybe something i can do at least in the that particular context if you want to switch the context we can do that as well Uh, what could we do to maybe override those uh, biases
2: Oh, that, that's that's the great question and the, the important thing here is that you've got to remember that the the implicit mind the non-conscious processes are the ones that are kind of doing all the work even in cases where you're following explicit suggestions so let's take the case of, of eating say you you know you are just you know your, your habit is just to go and just eat whatever you you feel like unreflectively mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know so you just take whatever's in front of you and then let's say you begin to notice that this is having some adverse health uh, consequences and you start to reflect a bit on it and you start to say, well, look, I, you know, I should definitely start avoiding those things. That very, you know, those high fat things or sugary things or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I should, and I should, so you, you reflect on this in this kind of dialogue that I was with oneself and you submit, say you come to a sort of decision You say, okay, I'm going to avoid those. Now, what have you done there? Well, you've, as I like to put it, you've sort of adopted a policy. Mm-hmm. You've made a sort of promise to yourself. I'm going to stick to this rule now of not eating those things uh, and focusing on the other things. Now, how does that policy? How does it get actually implemented? How do you? As you know, you know, I've said, I don't think there's some sort of separate system here, some separate brain system. Well, I think it gets implemented by the non-conscious mind, by the implicit mind, because we have a desire to stick to policies. We've decided on uh-huh. i mean this is probably this is probably a desire this you, you could think about this as originating in social uh, commitments if you tell somebody that you're going to do something then it's you know it's a good idea generally to stick to it otherwise you'll get um you'll get a lot of disapproval so you know we make promises to each other first of all and we get to you know get some some pushback if we don't if we don't honor those 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 promises then we can start making promises to ourselves you see in this kind of in a dialogue and we say, okay, I'm gonna promise myself I'm not gonna eat that. And if that works, it works because at the implicit level, you have a desire now, not necessarily a desire not to eat those things, you probably still want to eat those unhealthy things at the implicit level, but you also have an implicit desire to stick to the, the policies you've committed yourself to, to honor your promises to yourself. And so now it's a question of which is going to be stronger? At the implicit level, your desire to eat the 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 unhealthy food, or your desire to stick to your promise to yourself of not eating it, mm-hmm. and it's which is stronger, and mm-hmm. this is where I talk a bit about strength of will. I think strength of will really is the desire to stick to the. You see, it's a sort of that is that the. the, des, the, the the desire to stick to your promise is a sort of kind of higher level. It's, it's still implicit, but it's a sort of it's a desire to control yourself in a certain way rather than to just act on your immediate impulses. Mm-hmm. So it's whether that control, desire to control yourself is stronger than the, desire, than the sort of first order desire to just go ahead and eat whatever you want.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think there are what things you can do um, to help cultivate that. I mean, the first thing you need to do is to keep the promise in mind if you sort of make this promise to yourself and then just forget about it well that's that's not going to have any effect so right. you need to keep reminding yourself of the promise that so it's salient to you especially when you're coming to opportunities to to to, to break it so keep reminding yourself of it. keep reminding yourself of what it requires of you this particular thing and then keep sort of you need to sort of somehow strengthen your desire to act on it And there are two sort of aspects that one is you might have strengthened the desire to act on this particular promise, this desire to eat less, which you might uh, uh, do by reminding yourself of the benefits of eating less. So just keep keep thinking about what, why you want to eat less, why it's, it's all, uh, eat better, why it's good for you. Mm -hmm. And the other thing you might do is perhaps uh, try to strengthen your strength of will in general, your general desire to be a self-controlled person of which this is one particular instance. So you might say, Look, I want to be the person. When I make myself a promise, I want to stick to it. It's important to my to my self-esteem, you know, that I carry these things out. Just as it's important socially that people perceive me as someone who's reliable, mm-hmm. so that I do the things I promise, so that I, I perceive myself as a person who's reliable to myself.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, I mean, I, I I don't have like experimental evidence of this, but I, it seems to be plausible that, Thinking of yourself in that way and perhaps making a point of, of perhaps making simple commitments, ones that are kind of easy to, 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 uh, to to carry out and making sure you do it is going to kind of reinforce this image of yourself as somebody who is self-controlled. So you might say, okay, like maybe just today, I'm just going to stick to this policy of not eating, that sort of thing. Now, I'm not going to make the po- whole policy for that whole week or the whole month, but today, I'm just going to say today. And I'm going to make sure I stick to that. And then, having done that, you think, yeah, I did that. I, I control myself. I was you know, strong-willed about that. And then you can maybe sort of that, you know, move on to another step and say, I'm going, to, you know, I'm going to do it for a longer period or whatever it might be. But Reinforce this image of yourself who does the things you promised yourself to do. And, of course, make them good things that you promised.
0: No, of course. Actually, what's fascinating about that is I had to think, uh, you were mentioning uh, having some sort of experimental evidence that supports what it is that you're saying. Mm-hmm. I, I would actually, um, yeah, thinking back in my own experience, um, I used to be uh, obese. I used to be uh, 300 pounds or 130-something mm-hmm. kilograms, something like that. And, um, for me, uh, it's, it's actually just as you say, I had to keep it in my working memory to stay true to my commitment. And there yeah. were, it's funny that you said, um, to concentrate just on this particular day, whatever it is that task is to, uh, because if, if I made it a long-term goal I, in one sense I did, but in another yeah. sense, it, when I thought of it in like, when I framed it that way, it, I had a harder time sort of committing to that goal exactly. because yeah, it wasn't as strong as that implicit um, uh, bias slash desire that I had. Yep. Uh, when That's I good. did maintain that for that particular day, I would follow what it is that was my routine. That actually was enough to kind of um, overpower my uh, what I would usually do, which is actually quite fascinating. Because this is a very interesting way of thinking about it. Because um, that then implies that, yeah, if you're going to maybe make a change, maybe decide... Today I'm going to do something different because these things that you've been doing for a long time have such a, a weight around them that if you decided that you're going to mm. forever maintain some sort of new habit, it's harder to do that than just this yeah, particular a day. Bit at a
2: time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And also, when you achieve those little goals, you will, you never will, you'll, will, you will you'll get, you'll get, you know, you get a good feeling from that. It will give you some positive reinforcement, which will also, which so, which will then strengthen the desire to stick to other commitments because you feel that yeah when i stick to these commitments that makes me feel good so that the desire will increase to stick to them as it's it's you're trying to you've, i don't maybe i don't know if this is a good metaphor but think of a you know a huge sort of ocean liner and you can have the guy on the bridge saying look you know we want to change course but that's got an awful lot of stuff that's got to happen below decks to make that happen and you know you, you've got to have the people so you've got to have the the people in the engine room, or whatever—I'm not sure how far this, this metaphor works—responding appropriately, and you've got to encourage them to respond appropriately. You've got to give them the right feedback to know that they're going to get rewarded if they do what the captain says. Mm-hmm. So just—I so think there's a there's a danger that we we make these kind of commitments kind of rashly, perhaps sometimes, um, uh, and we perhaps overcommit ourselves, things that we that are too too big for us to achieve, and then we fail. Of course, we fail you know, because we've got this, all this weight of the ocean liner going in one particular direction. You can't just turn it around like that. And we fail. And that makes us, that that feeling of failure, yes, yeah, that's unpleasant. And that, I think, affects our confidence the next time we try to make a commitment and we're perhaps less willing to do it because we think, oh, I'll probably fail again and then I will feel bad again. So we're less willing to do it. You need to give yourself positive reinforcement on this. And you do that by realizing that just making a decision isn't enough. The decision has got to sort of, uh, as it were, sink down to the implicit levels and start influencing that stuff and start being strong enough to make the changes that are needed, to override the, you know, desires that maybe, the, the, the attitudes that have been there for years and years that are strong, that are automatic, that are, you know, I mean, this strong automatic stuff, it's, it, it's, way it's good, it's what gets you through the world. The trouble is if sometimes if we get bad things down there, it's, it's hard to get them out. So you need to look at it strategically. Mm-hmm. How can I sort of manipulate my unconscious mind to get me where I want to be? yeah
1: and so and speaking of just automatic thoughts and automatic desires just to kind of complement you what you guys are talking about what's so uh, to me is so fascinating is that a lot of times that uh, people essentially think that they are they have their habits but they also think that they are their thoughts in the sense of their beliefs yeah. so something that I remember sort of all of us were talking about before the show was focusing on all of this and kind of implicit and explicit beliefs from a clinical mm-hmm. perspective and then so from a clinical mm-hmm. perspective kind of and Keith I definitely want to hear your ideas on this um, so when kind of clients come to me, it's usually in the sense of like, um, well, they kind of feel pretty badly about themselves and they sort of feel badly about their futures. They kind of feel badly about their potential and they have this sort of implicit and even explicit belief, kind of these systems that tell them that they aren't good enough. And so a lot of times what we focus on is, or rather the sort of first question or one of the first questions that they would ask is like, how is it even possible for me to change something like that? How can I just automatically just change my beliefs? I've had these beliefs since I was a child. Is it not just something I can turn off and I would say yeah absolutely and so what I really like about the discussion that you guys were having was essentially that you can kind of change your habits right by being sort of more aware of them and being kind of more stronger in the sense of our. Oh, Sort of feeling that you're more kind of willingful or willing rather to kind of, kind of let's say, try or sort of shape or rechange your habits based on sort of more explicit values. And so the connection that I made with that in terms of kind of our just belief systems about ourselves or kind of the world around us is that essentially when it comes to kind of our beliefs and it comes to our values that people essentially think of themselves as... Um, it's kind of, I guess, for lack of a better term, kind of slaves to their beliefs, and they think that there's no possible way to change them, just like they feel that as though that they're kind of slaves to their behaviors. Mm-hmm. And so, when it comes to behaviors, I mean, it's, I think more, it's easier for people to understand that, okay, well, if I wanted to, or if I reminded myself that I needed to do, let's say, X uh, today, right, I needed to do X today in order to feel better about myself, I can easy, I can more easily do that than sort of believe that I'm something different, right? And so so what I find is that it's actually very similar to decision-making. So people are usually blown away by the idea that you can actually decide to believe something different. And so for them, they're like, whoa, 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 what do you mean I could just decide? Like how do I just do that? right? So it's definitely not that simple, but I kind of try to frame it to them in the sense or in the um, – in so I use kind of two two facets. I use science and I use logic. So when it comes to science, there are these two – well, it's technically connected. I don't want to – Right. I don't want to try to disconnect the two. So when it Mm -hmm. comes to science and it comes to logic, what we say is that, look, there are two kinds of forms of scientists, right? There are scientists who are sort of more empirical where they pretty much need 100% kind of concrete proof to believe in something. So a lot of times these people are the ones who are actually the deniers of, let's say evolutionary theory, even probably climate change. They say, no, we need to actually see it physically in order to believe that it's true. So in this case, when it comes to logic, it's very black and white that it's either I have clear evidence that something is true, some particular belief system, Or it's that this incomplete sort of doubt or in disarray. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to kind of the right and people on the right sort of denying evolution or climate change what they say is that well there's doubt right there's not a hundred percent consensus so very black and white. And so for my clients right a lot of times when they have these sort of really kind of core negative toxic beliefs in order to challenge them what they actually believe is that they need to have a hundred percent proof whatever that would even look like. So let's say if I believe I'm ugly I need a hundred percent of everybody to sort of think I'm attractive. I can't One person can't think that. So for them, they think, well, there's no way for me to overcome that, right? Because that's how beliefs work. They're like, I just can't believe something just because, you know, somebody said to me, you know, counter or or otherwise. And I say, yes. So here's the thing. If you're going to come at it or you're going to see it from a more empirical perspective where you're like, no, I need concrete evidence. I need to be 100% sure of it. Then I said, yeah, of course, that's the choice that you're making. However, right, if you're sort of a scientist in the more more kind of mainstream sense where you're using abductive reasoning in the sense of coming to the best expectations, explanation possible or yeah i mean i guess that's a good way of framing it sort of the best the best explanation based on the data that we have where we can say that okay let's say in the context of evolution we know 95 90 95 maybe some, depends on if you ask let's say richard dawkins will probably say 100 percent even though it's not true so let's say we have a 95 percent sort of certainty that evolution is true right and it's not so much that we have empirical data of it in the sense of we saw evolution occur over the sort of you know the span of millions of years we did it but we have a data to make that inference and say that it's the best explanation possible so what I try to tell tell my clients from a clinical standpoint is that you get to decide when is it enough evidence for you in order to change your beliefs so we first kind of talk about the beliefs from a childhood standpoint well from the standpoint of childhood or from the perspective of let's say trauma in childhood we Mm -hmm. say well these beliefs were implanted in you so these implicit beliefs were pretty much they were told to you by an authority figure who you respected and trusted and they were pretty much reinforced over a long period of time so as a kid when you didn't have the ability to critically examine them, it was really easy for you to just simply accept them, to say, well, I mean, this is my mom, this is my dad. And if they're saying these things about me, of course they're going to be true. But the thing is when you grow up and you de- develop, develop kind of, you know, hopefully somewhere down the line, the critical capacity to think and sort of form beliefs for yourself, you're the one who gets to decide when is it enough evidence for you to change a particular belief. So what I would say to them is like, look, you know, for the people who are empiricists, sometimes I guess maybe it's possible for you to be a hundred percent certain of some but it's very rarely that that's ever the case. So when we talk about sort of these bigger theories such as climate change or evolution, we don't mean that they're theories in the sense that they're just hypotheses, right? Because there's nuance there. So we don't mean that it's something that we just think based on the data it could be true. What we think is that because it is a theory that it's highly likely to be true. So when it comes to abductive abductive reasoning, what we mean is that we can take the information that let's say person X is getting from the environment and then from that we can make certain inferences. So let's say if somebody were to think that they were stupid we would say okay let's look at the evidence right so let's say x amount of people have given you all of this information right they let's say they believe that you were actually pretty pretty knowledgeable and pretty insightful mm-hmm. and so then they would say something along the lines of well okay but i mean yeah they said it right but like what well, i mean other people haven't said that before and i would say okay so let's say based on the evidence that you have right so and maybe another case you would say that other people haven't you given haven't given you that kind of feedback but in this case these particular people have and i would ask okay so let's say let's take context into consideration Mm -hmm. so these particular people what are sort of, what's their background, right? Like, what is sort of um, what is sort of the information that you're getting in terms of like, what's their, I guess, level of sort of knowledge or insight or expertise. And a lot of times they would say, well, you know, but teachers have told me that. Um, let's say my principal told yeah. me that. Um, you know, my father, well, not in this case, in terms of childhood trauma, not my father, but you know, maybe friends have told me that. Or friends have said, wow, like, you know, you're really insightful and you have all of this sort of plethora of knowledge and you always are there for me. Like, I always come to you for advice, right? And so sometimes what they would do is they would automatically discount the information. They say, oh, well, that doesn't count because this person is my friend, right? And I would say, okay, I mean, now let's examine that. Is it possible that your friend, right, who's like, who doesn't particularly see you that way, is it possible they would continuously come to you for advice and they would actually, you would see evidence of them using your advice? But so just not to kind of go on and on about this. My, my major point is that essentially when it comes to decision making, we can sort of in terms of explicit and implicit decision making we can kind of take a step back and ask ourselves okay what is it that I want to do to sort of move forward toward a particular goal and yeah. then also when it comes to belief system we can belief systems we can ask ourselves okay how is it that I can decide for myself when I should and shouldn't believe a particular thing right what is the amount of evidence that I should accept and when is it okay for me to sort of accept yep. a belief not knowing a hundred percent that it's true sort of saying that this belief is likely true or that this is the best explanation Possible with the evidence that we have, but it's also possible that I could be wrong, although unlikely. But if I am wrong, and if something were to contradict the information, that all I would do is simply change my belief. That it's not something no. I have to be kind of married to, right? That I don't need a hundred percent certainty to believe yeah. X.
2: Absolutely. Keith, what are your thoughts? Absolutely, and I think that's I think that's absolutely right. Um, what I would say though is, what happens then when they make this decision? Mm-hmm. Does it just sort of to auto- Suppose they get to a point, they say, "You're okay. I, I'm happy, but you know, I can make this change. I can make this uh, revise my belief about myself or about climate change or whatever it might be." Mm-hmm. What happens then? Does it just sort of, does it just kind of, you know, delete the the belief that was driving them before and just kind of replace it with this new one? Mm-hmm. I don't think it works quite like that. And this is kind of where there's a problem because you talked about habits. Then I think a lot of the what I was talking about implicit beliefs are. More like habits. They're they're ways of responding to the world. Mm -hmm. They're ways of, you know, of of, yes, of responding to to situations and to other people and so on by saying things, reacting in certain ways. It's kind of it's 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 not reflex, but it's almost it's, it's 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 very rapid. It doesn't require much thought. And it's something that's established, a pattern that's been established over a long time, and it's kind of worked for you. Maybe you picked up these beliefs because in the situations where you were, they kind of worked. Mm-hmm. I mean, if if you're in a community where everybody believes something, and you know, there's a lot of uh, you know uh, uh, negative reaction to people who believe anything differently, it makes sense to believe it too, and you know, to just react as they do, say yeah. the same things, dislike the same things. You know, quite so these things are kind of part of the habits that get you around the around the world Mm -hmm. and they're ingrained and tough for that reason because they're doing a lot of the work now suppose you reflect on these this you know this habit the the, the belief that it manifests and you say as as you're just describing so so well there uh yeah you know look really the evidence for it doesn't 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 isn't strong and the evidence on the other side is really you know strong enough to compel me to say not perhaps to compel me but to make it reasonable for me to say no it's the other thing mm-hmm. what happens then does this does this habit just get wiped out mm-hmm. no it's been there for years yep. it's not going to be wiped out but what you have now is you've done this, this attitude you've adopted in Uh, making this decision isn't another habit, not yet. You want it to become a habit. You want it to gradually erase the old habit and replace it, but it isn't that yet, not at all. It's more like a promise you've made to yourself. It's something, um, uh, it's it's kind of, it's a commitment, an expression. It's saying that's what I want to be now. That's how I, I want in future to be reacting and responding to the world in that way, not in that other one. So, but so far it's just a kind of it's it's a desire and a commitment to try and do it, mm-hmm. but it, by no means is it there yet. And this is why, if you, you're going to slip back, you're going to slip like Juliet. The she accepts after reflecting on the you know the evidence that there's no racial differences in intelligence. Of course, there aren't. I mean, again, you might say, well, it's not one hundred percent true, but it's overwhelming. So you know, mm-hmm. but still, she slips back into these old ways when she's not when she's not really paying attention to what she's doing, when she forgets the commitment or forgets to make the commitment effective. So this is what you, now you've got a task. It's no good at just making the, the change of mind and thinking, that's it, I've done it. No, you've just started. You've now got to monitor yourself. You've got to watch yourself. You've got to look for occasions where this commitment to, is relevant and start trying, perhaps quite effortfully at first, to regulate your behavior in line with it. And that's going to initially be hard because you've got this huge, pre-existing habit that's pushing in the other direction and you've got to try to resist that it's like i mean here's an example like um you know you, you driving the car and the indicator st- your, your the indicator stalk on your car is on one side on will say, say it's on the right
3: mm-hmm. and you've
2: driven this car for years okay and you just you know when you want to make an you know turn you just you know, your hand just goes to it all you get a new car and the indicator stalks on the other side now you sit in the car and, Immediately, you say, Ah, oh, the indicator stalks on the other side. Okay, I'm going to have to move my left hand around my right hand. No problem, I can do that. But it takes you, you, know, you see, you've made the kind of commitment to saying you use left hand rather than the right hand. Mm-hmm. But it takes you days, weeks, months before it finally sort of becomes a habit, before the, the sort of the old implicit belief that it's on the right gets erased, if you like. Mm-hmm. You you know that's like you know you with your own implicit with your, own, with your own habits your own mind you've got to you've got to work at changing them. Yeah,
0: there's and, a certain uh, uh, that's right. There's a certain uh, momentum to these ingrained habits mm-hmm. that you have. That's yes. why these new behaviors that you're uh, trying you have to. Uh, mm-hmm keep your commitment to them in the case of Juliet, um while she's grading she may explicitly understand you know that there is no difference in race when she's grading her paper she kind of without uh, constantly using her working memory to keep this commitment to her her explicit belief she she keeps falling back into her implicit bias so i suppose using that as an example um you'd have to just keep it in your working memory and let that have its own momentum in order to override these these prior ingrained beliefs or slash habits, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yes, then, so, you've because, got to keep in your mind yourself.
1: Oh, and I just kind of wanted to really share, leave, share quickly with you guys a kind of personal story of how sort of what worked for me. <laughs> and so, and definitely want to hear your feedback on it. Um, so for me, <laughs> um, so when it comes, so I'm, kind of I guess a personal uh, thought. So uh, for a long, a very long time I was a pretty judgmental person. I mean it was sort of very easy for me to very quickly sort of judge people in a very harsh way and kind of be hard because I was hard on myself and I was also hard on other people. Um, so what to me was very helpful about that was so psychologically speaking I mean so we kind of known that sort of self-criticism or rather other criticism of other people is a reflection of the self. So that was definitely partially helpful to me but in terms of what you guys are talking about this is why this idea came to me is that commitment was also very important to me so in terms of so this is what helped to me so um i have a college mentor his name is dr timothy stroop so he's an ethicist and so he's a person in my life who's been super influential and so one thing that he once told me was that he said you know what impressed me the most about you was your ability to sort of be um kind of married to reason and to truth that he said no matter kind of where you went like truth was really important to you and that you were committed to it regardless of how it made you feel so to some extent that was true but not to the extent of my uh of eliminating kind of my ability to sort of judge or my I guess willingness rather to kind of um explicitly um to automatically judge other people Mm -hmm. so in a sense he was sort of partially right so he was what he was saying is that my commitment to truth in an academic sense was absolutely true but my commitment to truth in an interpersonal sense was not and that's I think a part of me that he didn't know at the time and then so for me I remember I sat there and I kind of thought about it and I said wow so am I really committed to truth or like am I kind of sometimes being an asshole and sort of being obviously, you know, just false when I make these quick assertions of other people and their experiences and why they're doing the things that they're doing. Um, and then so what really helped me was when I kind of sat back and thought about it and I said, you know, what I really want is to live up to this expectation, right? To whatever degree that that's possible. So academically, I was like, okay. I mean, academically, I could say fairly, whatever, fairly, I could pretty much keep an open mind. So not, not fully, obviously, there's some things, I, I don't want to be sort of too arrogant About it, but like I'm, I'm pretty decent when it comes to sort of textbook stuff. But then when it came to people, I felt like I was actually pretty shut off and I was close-minded. So whenever somebody did something, I automatically believed that I knew the answer as to why, and I blamed them for it. I was very harsh in my assessment. Mm -hmm. And so I remember thinking about it, and I said, "Wow, you know what? I really this guy means so much to me, and he was like a father figure in my life, and I really Mm -hmm. want to live up to the way that he sees me." So the way that I sort of looked at it was, okay, I said, in order to sort of assess my beliefs, or in order to kind of um, make sure that I have the most accurate representation possible my commitment was to sort of to be in um, to live up to that ideal his ideal or his perception of me in his best way as possible so whenever I would kind of start looking back or whenever I even going forward, whenever I found myself judging someone, I was asking myself, okay, am I actually living up to my ideal at that point? Am I being committed to truth? Am I committed to sort of understanding this person's experience, to seeing reality as it actually is? Or am I sort of more committed to holding on to my implicit belief of my sort of automatic thought of what I think that person's experience is? And so in that case, when I would kind of go back, I would say, no, I am committed to sort of living up to this perception of myself and this perception that I have of myself and also this perception, perception. that my mentor has of me so when i would kind of take yeah. a step back i would consistently ask myself maybe not always definitely not always but you know as much as you could as much as as I wanted to I would say yeah as much as I wanted to I would sort of look back and I would say okay um, am I really committed to sort of understanding not just this person but understanding reality am I really committed to truth or am I more committed to just accepting the belief that I initially had so what helped me in terms of forming a particular commitment was sort of reminding myself that this person has this view of me and I don't want to let him down I don't want him to I don't want to sort of lie to him even if I didn't explicitly tell him that I want you what I am this way I just felt like for me it was important for him to see me that way and so the commitment in a sense was the commitment to truth yes but it was also a commitment to making sure that this person has an accurate representation of me so
2: yeah I think that's I think that's great and I think that's that really provides a a great illustration of what what I was, was trying to talk about earlier, which was that when you make these promises to yourself, there might be epistemic commitments to truth, or there might be commitments to particular kinds of activity, like eating better. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to make the commitment, it's another to act on it. You you need to have a strong, implicit desire to act on that commitment, which is strong enough to make you act on the commitment rather than the the first order desire to do something else, or the first order belief uh, in something else. And I, you asked me, you know, how could you sort of strengthen that? Well, that's a great way, having some kind of exemplar, some uh, ideal, some person who you want to, whose who's, uh, vision of you you want to live up to. Mm-hmm. I think that's a terrific way. And I think this is, this is quite important that, I mean, I don't want to sound too idealistic and though, but I think when dealing with people who, also communities that have views that we think are, are, are reprehensible, that we, that we, well, that are reprehensible, there's a great tendency to just go in for sort of condemnation of the views and just say, that's wrong, that's unfair, that's horrible, that's, you know, whatever. I think we need to do something a bit more than that. We need to try and provide them with a kind of, the, the motivation, not just to, to to change that view, but then to sort of live up to a higher ideal of themselves mm-hmm. that would be in line with this. And so this is why I think it requires more than just confronting the views. You need to provide them with a kind of community. With an exemplar like that, with somebody like that, mm-hmm. Who can, who has a vision of them that is better than mm-hmm. than the one that they're currently, and so, I mean, this may sound naive, and you, you know, people might rightly say, well, "Look, there are some people's views are so objectionable that we we shouldn't engage with them." But I think for a lot of people, I think you know, it's changing hearts as well as minds, mm-hmm. and just confronting the views is 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 not enough. You need to give them the the strength of will, the, 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 the self the vision of themselves that will help them to not just to make the ch- to, to change their views but then to, 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 to act on those changed views and make them their new self so I think yeah I think having ideals like that is incredibly important I think that's I mean one I think we're not a very kind of idealistic culture at the moment we seem to be a rather cynical culture we seem to not expect a lot of each other and of a, of a society and um, I mean I'm generalizing wildly here and I know it's silly but we need we, I mean and it's difficult of course to have ideals because we know that you know uh, um, people have feet of clay and we know that you know you have some some uh, person who you've you've, you've maybe uh, you know idolized and then you find out that there's Kinds of problems with them, and so on. And it's hard to maintain this this idealism, but it's it, it's it's. I think that's one way in which we can help ourselves. One the the way to help yourself be the person you want to be is to engage with someone who wants you to be that way, who sees you that way, who has that vision of you, like your mentor. And we need to do this for each other. I think. It's too much to expect people to create it for themselves, to create that vision of themselves for themselves.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, they need to see it in other people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So becoming...
2: No, yes.
0: I, I agree with you. There, there should be some sort of systematic approach um, that we sort of have in, in our culture that kind of would allow for this sort of change to occur.
2: The mm-hmm, thing is, mm-hmm.
0: things are so, how should I put this, like, things occur quite randomly, Right, mm-hmm. uh, somewhat arbitrarily sometimes, and without a structure, um, some people will make it. Some people will uh, happen upon uh, great mentors. They'll mm-hmm. um, they'll be able to change in a in a direction that they, they see is beneficial towards themselves. Maybe contribute to other people. But then there's going to be other people who you know due to the arbitrary you know circumstances may just not be so lucky. May not even know that. They can have, they can override their implicit biases, for example, or who yes, yes. are aware that there there can be metacognition, like you can, be, you know, yeah. be aware yeah. of your thinking, um, yes, or projection, or or things of that nature, you know, among other things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Keith, definitely, I'm with you 100%. There, there should be something for instance i mean that's kind of like why i like podcasts for instance it doesn't have to no. necessarily even be this particular podcast although very well that very may very well maybe yeah there are other ones as well right mm-hmm. and there are people who depending on how the audience resonates with uh, who's on the show or who's speaking that for them may be that particular mentor for, for instance the way mm-hmm. that you're framing things uh, keith honestly i i like it especially having read your article um it actually if if you really digest the article you really can from it kind of develop your own method of how to sort of change your own implicit biases um i i could definitely see like every for instance you highlighted four ways forgive me <laughs> that i wouldn't be able to Uh, mention all of them at this particular moment but for instance um keeping your commitment in your working memory plus the motivation Mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. sort of uh you know to keep going with your endeavor that's it's interesting because you you also highlight what are the pitfalls to it how to kind of Mm -hmm, how mm -hmm. to sort of also uh successfully do it um that uh, kind of how to look out for it. So I I think it's interesting Mm -hmm. how you framed it in your article, because I feel like almost prepared for any sort of circumstance while trying to undertake that endeavor. So I think that's like a good resource, for example, to consult if you're attempting to, you know, override, uh, something that you implicitly do with some sort of implicit bias. Mm -hmm. So that's just one. Well, thanks.
2: That's, well, that's very kind of. Um, I should say that um, that article is in a is in a book and a collection, but there is a, a free e-print of it on my website, on my own version of it. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to buy the book to, to read the article. <laughs> um, if you I, let, let's just mention something here, there is a sort of dark side to all this as well. I think because uh, there's a danger that you can start doing the same process uh, in a negative way. You can start adopting, committing yourself to bad views,
3: mm-hmm.
2: bad views of yourself. You can start making these promises to yourself. It's perhaps inappropriate to talk about these promises, but these, you can sort of adopt these views of yourself. You can adopt negative views, that you cannot do these things, that you are a, a, a bad person or an unlikable person, ugly person, or whatever it is. And you start making that as the commitment to yourself. And then you start working on ingraining that as a habit doing the it's uh, and, and i think that there are certain situations that uh, you know if people have low self-esteem if they're getting if they have got bad social relations with it they, they, we that can induce people to do this and you need we need to be very careful to 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 avoid doing that and i think we all have a tendency to, tendency to do it um the the thing is you tend to we tend to we tend to live up to the picture of ourselves that we present to ourselves, and so we're going to be very careful in shaping that picture and shaping it positively. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we, we, you see, in a sense, this, this, this is the, this is the sort of great thing about being human, <laughs> is that I, mean, I for animals, I think the animals are just creatures. I, I don't mean to. This isn't too sort of, sort of. Um, Uh, you know just sort of dismiss animals non-human animals i mean i I love animals but i think they're largely creatures of habit their reactions to the world are shaped by their experience and they're kind of the prisoner of that they can't do this thing of stepping out and reflecting on the habits they have on the on the way they react to the world they can't do this metacognitive thing they can't sit back and say look i always have this thing where you know um i don't know when the food comes out where i rush out and gobble it down but really i shouldn't do that i should space it out so there's more for me later on they don't I, I don't, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe some of the, uh, the higher apes have something like this, I don't know, but um, the great apes have something like this. Um, but we can do this, we can sort of, uh, we we can sort of construct for ourselves this other kind of mind, this mind of self-questioning, self-reflection, mm-hmm. self-commitment. And this is, this is what I think makes us just different from the other, um, other animals, that we can Create this, this, this new kind of level, of level of mental activity which allows us to shape the other, more, more animal level, and to change our own habits, to take new courses. Now, that's both the sort of blessing and the curse of being human. It's a blessing because we can shape ourselves in good directions, it's a curse because we can shape ourselves in bad directions. And understanding the mechanisms of this, how it happens, uh, why it's important, how you can cultivate it in one way or another, I think this is incredibly important. Um, and understanding the, ext- the, the, the both the, the the powers of this and the limits of it mm-hmm. you know we can't just we can't just sort of say to ourselves right I'm going to change now and everything's going to be different it doesn't work you're going to fail and feel depressed but equally it's not the case that you can't do anything about it that you're the prisoner of your habits you can do things mm-hmm. and you need to reflect on where you want to go and how you're going to get there and this is really distinctively human existence I think
1: and so, Keith, I wanted to read an excerpt from one of your articles on Aon, so the one about self-deception, which I thought okay. was really, really important, and I had a question about it. So you wrote, oh, great. Okay, so the, the quote is, studies show that people who sincerely say that racial stereotypes are false often continue to behave as if they are true when not paying attention to what they are doing. Such Mm -hmm. behavior is usually said to manifest an implicit bias, which conflicts with the person's explicit beliefs. But the ISA theory Mm -hmm. offers a simpler explanation. People think that the stereotypes are true, but also say that it is not acceptable to admit this, and therefore say that they are false. Moreover, they say Mm -hmm. to themselves, too, in inner speech, and mistakenly interpret themselves as believing it. So, Keith, I wanted to ask you, first of all, what is ISA theory, and how come come within (sighs) the theory we sort of reinterpret implicit and explicit bias?
2: Ah, right. Oh, Big question. So, I, I say that is uh, uh, interpretative sensory access. I think this is—it's uh, a term uh, coined by the philosopher Peter Carrados, who's a professor of philosophy at, um, uh, in, at Maryland mm-hmm. and was my PhD, PhD supervisor. Someone, oh, that's really uh, cool. Uh, huge influence on me and a very, very good philosopher of mine. Mm-hmm. One of the leading contemporary philosophers of mine. Um, now, that's, um, uh, this theory is one that he um, sets out in a book, I think it's 2011, called The Opacity of Mind. It's about self-knowledge, about the limits of self-knowledge. And he thinks that we, our knowledge of our own minds is very limited indeed, particularly with regard to belief and desire. Mm-hmm. He thinks that uh, it's the sort of picture that I've been sketching of of the implicit, uh, implicit mind. He thinks that beliefs and desires are really all kind of uh, operate at a non conscious level.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and we have no immediate access to them. You can't just sort of look into, as it were, you, you, into this, this sort of mechanism <laughs> that is controlling your behavior and just see what beliefs and desires you have in there. No, they're there, they're, they're parts of the of the, of the system and they are controlling your action. Your, Beliefs about your own beliefs are the product of self-interpretation.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So you, interp- you have to interpret yourself. What do I believe? Well, you know, here's how I behave, and uh, you know, here's what I say, and here's what I think, and so you know, these are things that come to mind. So look, that's what I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, take the, now, take the case, of, but we don't always get this right. Take the case of Juliet. She believes that black people are less intelligent than white people. That's what she believes. That's the, the, the guiding uh, belief um, behind most of her action.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's what she believes. And if she reflects on it a little bit, she'll see. If she interprets herself, that's what she believes. Um, and her belief that you – know, this is Peter's of telling the story – uh, she falsely believes that she doesn't believe that. <laughs> she she also seems to have this explicit belief that there are no racial differences in intelligence. She seems to have this 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 um, uh, this correct egalitarian belief that there are no differences. Mm-hmm. She doesn't really have that belief according to Peter. The thing that's driving her behaviour is the is is the biased belief.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: What she does is, is she tells herself that she believes that. Mm-hmm. She falsely thinks that she believes the the the, the unbiased belief.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It's a piece of bad self-interpretation.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, whereas if she scrutinizes it, so she p- perhaps believes that because she remembers you know, reading this article that said, you know, the science shows there are absolutely no differences in the racial difference in intelligence. And she thought, yeah, that seems plausible to me. That's that's okay, that's what I believe. And she remembers that and she thinks, oh, that's what I believe. She hasn't sufficiently noticed, uh, observed and interpreted her own behavior. So she has a belief that the racial differences, there are racial differences in intelligence, and a false belief that she believes there aren't.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's, I think, what I was getting at in that, in that paper. Now, I, I, I think that's too pessimistic in a way, because I don't think these explicit beliefs are just Sort of bits of self interpretation. I think they can be more than that. They can be, as we've been talking about, commitments. Mm -hmm. So Juliet didn't just say, Oh, I think I believe that there are no racial differences in intelligence. That's how I interpret myself. I'm happy with that and go on. She can commit to that, to living up to it. Mm -hmm. But then she does need to be quite reflective. She does need to watch her behavior. She does need to be open to the possibility that merely having said it doesn't necessarily make it true. This is the thing, I mean, we we are great self-deceivers. We tell ourselves that we believe something, Mm -hmm. something, you know, that we're we're good people, that we're fair, that we don't have any of these biases. But we don't really perhaps monitor ourselves and check that we are actually manifesting those beliefs and desires in our behavior. And if we're not, we need to do something to this process we've been talking about of shaping ourselves to the vision we have of ourselves. So, I don't think it's, I, I don't agree with Peter that it's just a matter of, of self-interpretation. It can be also self-creation,
3: mm-hmm.
2: self-shaping in line with this. So I um, it might may start as self-interpretation. It may start as this is the, it may start as a false belief that you believe that there are no racial differences, but then you can make it true.
1: Right. And so the thought that I had, or the question that I had was, I guess, is it possible for both of those things to be true? Where on the one hand, let's say Juliet would act as though she believed that there were these big racial or important racial differences. And then on the other hand, when she was thinking about it more explicitly accepting the contrary belief, that she was acting in line with that value. Or rather that Oh, yes,
2: yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yes, absolutely. There's that, This is why you get these conflicts of behavior. Mm-hmm. Um you have you have a, 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 a commitment that isn't conflict with the the implicit belief that is driving your behavior. But the commit my difference with, with Peter, I think, is that for him this explicit stuff is just a sort of self presentation, a sort of self belief. Whereas I think it can be more like a self commitment that actually has real effects. Hmm. I mean, he wouldn't deny that, but he would perhaps he wouldn't deny that it can have effects, but he would he wouldn't call it a belief. He wouldn't call the explicit thing a, a, a belief in. Um, uh, um, Uh, the opposite proposition, the the idea that there are no, um, no racial differences. But yes, we can absolutely have this conflict, and this is very important, and that sometimes you're being, as it were, guided by your higher self, as it were, and sometimes by your lower self, and it's important to recognize these things.
3: Yeah.
1: And do you think that shame or a sense of guilt can be a motivator for, let's say, oh. yeah, not necessarily changing the belief, because I think the belief or the belief change would be so uh, related rather to or the foundation for a sense of shame or guilt. But do you think that that sense of sh- shame or guilt, guilt, that sense of shame or uh, both possibly, the sense of shame and guilt, can be the foundation for sort of being more motivated or more committed to acting in the context of your, I guess whatever, in light of your new belief or in light of this sort of altered oh.
2: belief? Absolutely, shame and belief incredibly powerful. Of course, and then they are they are socially um, they're, 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 they're social emotions, and um, of course they can be they themselves can be both positive and negative, depending on the sort of community you're, that you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> you know, shame can be used to to to, to to induce people to, to do and believe all kinds kinds of terrible things. Mm-hmm. But it's incredibly powerful um, motivator. Yes, uh, and sense of self internalizing this a sense that you're not living up to what you to, to your own ideals yes mm-hmm. though uh, again these I, I think in all of these things people need to be um, kind of gentle with themselves <laughs> and realizing that in trying to this sort of reshaping that I'm talking about' it's, it's got to be done gradually if you're going to set yourself a, 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 a very ambitious goal and then feel ashamed of yourself for not meeting it then that's going to be kind of productive you, because shame is a very negative emotion. You need to set yourself a modest goal that you can reach, and then feel good about yourself, and that will reinforce it and enable you to go a bit further next time. So, I mean, shame is certainly powerful, um, but uh, I think it's it's got to be you know used with caution, as it were.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so the way I try to kind of conceptualize this is that, um, from my understanding of it, is there's a huge difference between a pretty big gap between shame and guilt. So shame is based mm-hmm. on an assessment of your character on the whole to say something mm-hmm. along the lines of "I'm a bad person," "I'm a terrible person," mm-hmm. um, "I'm worthless," whatever, etc. But um, then guilt is particularly connected to the behaviors or the actions to say "I feel right, guilty right, because right. I did this particular thing." So when right. it comes right. to shame, there's really nothing that you can do with that because this is a part of who you are. Right. So a person. Yeah tend to think that it's either impossible to change or it's very unlikely. So when we come at it from that standpoint, what happens is a person tends to feel overwhelmed and just might even deny it altogether and say, no 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 I'm not that bad person. Right? Or sort of deny being racist or just deny doing any yeah. of those things that indicate poor values or poor beliefs rather. Um, but when it comes to guilt, it's much easier because we're saying that here these particular behaviors, right? and these behaviors are behaviors that you've done based on this reason, but now that you have a different set of beliefs that now you can right. sort of act differently. Mm-hmm. So yes, you should feel guilty right. about it, and that's okay because all of yeah. us feel guilty about things that we've done, but now that you should use that guilt as a motivator to change, now that it's possible yeah. knowing yeah. that it doesn't define you as a sort of as a whole, and it isn't, doesn't indicate a broad conception of who you are as a human being. Hmm.
2: Yeah, I agree totally, absolutely, yes. Yeah. Yes, I think perhaps what i or what I said that could perhaps have been better cast in terms of guilt rather than shame I'm not
0: sure yeah no no of course you you want to move away from things that are painful or things that are mm-hmm. terribly uncomfortable mm-hmm. so if for some reason you associate guilt or shame with a particular behavior or something that you're or an activity that you do or right. um, that yeah if, i can see that being a powerful motivator but i agree with uh, mm-hmm. keith that maybe there maybe setting your eyes towards another emotion a more modest sort of goal maybe being pulled instead of being pushed away from something by uh, guilt or shame sure. maybe being pulled towards something with you know some sort of excitement or enthusiasm or something that could kind of push you to keep trying new things mm-hmm. but it depends right. i believe it's context mm-hmm. dependent right. so i'm sure it could work shame or guilt mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you would just think it's not the ideal um, uh, at least oh, could, on the surface,
1: it could also be both. I'm thinking that even if, let's say, so guilt maybe doesn't necessarily have to be the only motivator. So, one of the other motivators mm-hmm. could be just to sort of self, you know, kind of actualization, right? I want to become the best version of myself, but then also yeah. on top of that, I
0: feel guilty. So, today. yeah, see, nuance like that is what alters. See, that's why I said on the surface. Mm-hmm. That, so, fair enough. Most yeah, definitely. Of course, yeah. All right. Um, yeah, so, th- go ahead, Keith.
2: I think the danger, so I just think the da- the danger with shame. I think, if you, particularly if you're trying to shame people out of out of out of reprehensible beliefs, is that you know shame is so painful that people just don't want to confront it, and they just they just close down, they just put up the barriers in some way, and just refuse to, to face it. Whereas offering a, a more positive and optimistic vision of themselves is, is is perhaps a better way to get them to to be self-critical. If they see that you know maybe change these attitudes, and you know you know you're going to be more like you know, somebody they admire or someone or whatever. Uh, I think that's, it's carrot and stick, I suppose, you know, but I, I, I tend to think that focus just on making people feel bad about themselves isn't necessarily the best way to, to, to get them to adopt a better vision.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, okay, so I want to say something that I just, my hope is, so I was thinking this and I just hope it's not sort of misinterpreted by the people who listen to mm-hmm. it. But in terms of, and so I'm going to try to be as clear about this idea as possible. Mm-hmm. So as a kind of culture, right, we're very sort of, um, we're very quick to shame people for, let's say, either acting in a way that's sexist or acting in a way that's racist. Yep. And so unfortunately what happens is, so look, sometimes it works. Sometimes the person, you know, if you can convince them through shame, through the use of shame, it's a great thing. The problem is statistically it doesn't. Because what happens is when you call a person sexist or racist, they automatically defend themselves. They say, no, no, I'm, not, I'm yeah. not any of those things. Or sometimes even conversely, they would say, yeah, I am, but like that's how life is supposed to be. So they sort of double down on it. And so the way yeah. I kind of yeah. conceive of it is from a standpoint of guilt and empathy. And so in this case, what you would do, or what I find to be helpful, and again, I just, my hope is that this is not misinterpreted, is to say that, look, I understand based on the environment why you have these particular implicit biases, that you obviously, you grew up in a highly racist culture, you hi- you grew up in a highly sexist culture, right? Which, I, by the way, I did, right? So for me, it mm-hmm. sort of took a lot to understand why kind of I believed certain things that I believed when I was younger. And so it's pretty much inevitable because you are your environment. It's very hard for somebody just to kind of turn that off or to say, no, 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 no. I'm gonna have these different beliefs or these different values and so what I find to be most helpful is when you sort of first you would tell the person Well, first, you would try to kind of use logic and reason to convince them that it doesn't make sense for you to be or believe these things because we know kind of from evidence that obviously women and kind of, um, and let's say people who are in different sort of ethnic categories, they're not in any inherent sort of way inferior to people, you know, Caucasian men especially, right? That doesn't make any sense, right? So if you can sort of work at it from that perspective, from kind of logic, reason, and evidence, and then on the other hand to say, no, 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 but look, I also understand why you believe the things that you believe. They're wrong. This is why they're wrong. But you should shouldn't be ashamed of them, right, because these beliefs were in the sort of milieu of this particular context, right? So then the next question is, okay, so what do you do with that, right? So then if it's not shame, how do you get the person to change? And then you would say, okay, so here are the behaviors that you've sort of enacted, and this is the way you've treated people based on those implicit beliefs, right? You shouldn't be ashamed of yourself as a human being because they make a lot of sense in the context, but going forward, if you were to continue to behave this way, or even kind of looking back, well, not looking back on it, let's say going forward, because now you have this sort of new sort of evidence or new information if you were to continue to act in this way you should feel guilty about it because now kind of as we've gone through the evidence and if Mm. this person has accepted the evidence this isn't the right way to treat somebody because you know it isn't right based on the information that we've just talked Mm. about so more so than shaming a person for being racist and sexist which kind of we know from the data isn't very effective i think it's much better to sort of try to first understand why they are the way they are and try to sort of empathize with them and explain to them that we understand why is it that you believe certain things that you believe and then also from the other perspective to say that yeah now that you know we've kind of examined it and that you know some part of you has accepted this as being factual that we have to say that you should feel guilty about your behavior going forward if you were to act on that old belief system but then then also kind of again from empathy understanding that look you're not going to change overnight and we understand you're going to make some mistakes but we also want to help you feel guilty about them and we want you to sort of correct them and correct course (laughs) and to say that no if you do make that mistake and if you do act in such a way which is founded in racism or sexism you should go back and apologize apologize or make amends right yeah. because yeah. we understand that automatic yeah. habits and beliefs don't just change overnight and you're not just going to become Absolutely. a different person right but you have to sort of now work toward behaving like you believe these new beliefs yeah. right you have to behave in such a way where the indication is that no he believes sort of in a more equality or in a more egalitarian kind of uh, or has a more egalitarian perspective i
0: don't yeah. think you're yeah. going to be misunderstood i hope
1: that. i hope that that's why i was afraid of saying it because i know kind of we're very quick to shame people and i just it's not it's not effective
2: absolutely the effective the effectiveness is the important thing because you need this person it's one thing to have sort of a kind of a you know confrontation with somebody and explain why they're wrong and perhaps even get them to admit that they're wrong but that hasn't changed anything much it's a long process after that of getting them to reshape their habits Mm -hmm. in line with this 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 new attitude and they need to you know they need to be doing that in the end the only person that can change your mind is yourself because somebody else might convince you right okay i accept that But that's not the end of it. There's this process of self-shaping after to this new ideal. And you've got to do that yourself. You've got to keep this, keep regulating yourself, watching yourself. And if that process is just, is is entirely supposed to be motivated entirely by guilt and shame or whatever, the attitudes, people are not going to be kind of so highly motivated to do it. You know, they're not going to be trying to keep these attitudes in mind that they've been made to feel, you know, such a, you know, such a, uh, that they have such negative feelings about you, they they need to be motivated by a positive vision of how they can be better, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> of why this is something they want to do to 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 reshape themselves in this better direction. So this is, I think, is why things like you know finding some role model or something like that, or someone who you know uh, they can hold in mind as yeah, I want to I want to live up to that guy's ex- uh, vision of me. I think that's a much more powerful way of getting them to do the self shaping than to just. Have this very negative picture of their of themselves yeah. that they're trying to escape from, um, <clears throat> because even though they're trying to escape from it, they still have to entertain that thing as the motivator. You see, and so entertaining that is not very pleasant. Again, it needs to be a combination. But I think having, I mean, we need to sort of have like communities that can. I mean, I, I suppose this is something that the church used to do in a way that churches used to do. Um, mm-hmm. That they used to sort of offer people who had kind of converted, an incredibly supportive atmosphere, and it was like, you know, you're you may be a sinner or whatever, but your sins are forgiven, and you're now part of this wonderful community, and we're going to support you every step of the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had this way of distancing the sinner from the sin, and so on. Which just psychologically is quite a useful thing because they can say, yes, you have this bad thing about you, the sin, and that's really, really bad, and you feel bad about it. But it's not you; it doesn't define you. You can we've got a better vision of you, and here you can follow that, right. and. Maybe I guess we need some sort of secular vision of that, that can um, that can combine the awareness of the thing that needs to be eradicated with the vision of the person as right. someone who's who's not defined by it.
1: Wow, it's it's to say that you are redeemable, and that's that's a really brilliant idea from Christian thought.
2: <sighs> Which is what, in a sense, it's <laughs> not what we all want. In a sense we're all sort of so aware of our of our. Of our, of our failings, of the, the things sort of that we've, we've, we've uh, you know, the people we've let down, the, the projects we haven't fulfilled, the, you know, the, the way that we haven't lived up. We all want this idea of better vision of ourselves. Um, we all want redemption. So, and that's you know, psychologically Christianity. I mean, I'm in another religion, still, I'm not just being that. Make, makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it offers us kind of route to this kind of self shaping. I think and a mechanism for it um, that is uh, uh, that is quite effective.
1: And if it's all right with you guys, I want to actually go back for, I mean, not a moment, I guess Mm. this is going to kind of be a bigger shift, go back to decision making, because I had a question for you, Keith. Mm. Okay, so in Mm -hmm. your article, in the Aeon article, you wrote, our beliefs about our own thoughts and decisions are the product of self-interpretation and are often mistaken. Mm -hmm. And so when I read this, I was wondering, what is sort of your understanding of, and I'm sure you you probably know this way better than we do, on um, the results of Benjamin Libet and sort of the neuropsychological Mm -hmm. studies that pretty much show that it's sort of pre-consciousness that brings about decisions, and then later on we interpret our decisions, or rather we interpret why we would made the decisions that we made. So essentially the mm-hmm. kind of neuroscientific argument is, not for everybody, but for from a lot of sort of perspectives, is that essentially that we don't actually make decisions in the moment. That we actually are sort of pre-consciousness, or our brains essentially make our decisions for us, and then we kind of interpret them and we kind of create the reasons why. Backwards
3: rationalization. Backward,
1: there it is. Backwards <laughs> rationalization. So essentially we kind of make up reasons why we decide what we decide without actually having those reasons be the reasons necessarily in the kind of initial moments of making those decisions so Keith I wanted to ask um, is it possible then to ever make a decision consciously or is it that we are sort of subject to our brain chemistry in a sense <laughs> I
2: mean I, I, yeah I mean certainly the, the, this sort of confabulation does happen as I don't, no doubt about that but though of course in a lot of cases I think you know the the, the sort of the non-conscious places that initially initiating it are, co- are consonant with the interpretation that we consciously um, attach to it. You know, we're kind of right about ourselves. We know ourselves pretty well. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's a big mistake here, I think, to think of like the brain. my brain <laughs> chose this before I did you. are your your brain is, you know, your brain decided it, it's you doing it. Okay, maybe you doing it. uh, uh, without conscious awareness but that's still you Mm -hmm. because you are this reactive creature look if I if I have a bunch of attitudes that you know lead me to just you know behave in a certain way as I was I I wander around the world they are me that's me acting indeed often the things that we pride ourselves most on are the things that we don't do consciously think about somebody who is say a, a an expert musician thinking consciously about every move they make it's the fact that you know, they're so skilled they don't need to it's a whole it's a it's a talent they've developed mm-hmm. a way of engaging with the piano and producing this wonderful music and it's 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 them they are the people they are the one playing the piano but they're not it's not their conscious mind that's entertaining every 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 uh, you know the, the the movement of their fingers and so on planning it and so on that's they practice so they didn't need to do that or a sports player indeed, as we're speaking to each other now, we're not consciously pre-planning every word we speak. That's true. If I tried to do that, I, I would be even more incoherent than I am. That's true. Uh, we would just, uh, we wouldn't be able to talk. But it's still me talking. Mm-hmm. I'm the whole thing. It's, it's the whole deal. So this idea that it was my brain, not me. No, no, no. no. That's, that is you doing it. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen And now the conscious awareness... A conscious reflection and I'm, I'm not even consciously reflecting on much of what i'm saying it's just coming out of my mouth and mm. hopefully it makes sense to you but i'm not sort of oh, why did i say it? i don't know it's just happening look here it's coming out actually now i'm trying to think about it i'm finding it where, where is this sentence going to go how what where you see you see i'm just breaking down
3: right
2: uh-huh. so uh being in the moment being spontaneous this is really being you.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It's when you try and second, sort of second-guess yourself and thinking, oh, what, should I say that? Should I, this is when it breaks down, and it's not
3: you. Mm-hmm.
2: At the most, when we're most in the moment, when we're most with someone we love or you know, doing something we love, we're not consciously reflect. We are just doing it. We're just being it. That is us. That is you. That And so, in a way, that is why the implicit you sometimes is, that. well, that is the real you, and that's why you want to shape it in the right direction.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, so uh, are we... Are, is our conscious interpretation always um, uh, wrong? No, I don't. Because often we we, we know what, why we're doing things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, why am I saying these words? Because I'm trying to answer your question. You know, I, there could be some, I suppose, some 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 strange other reason why I'm saying them. But no, I think I'm just trying to answer you. I'm probably right about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you can devise situations, uh, experimental situations, where you can induce people to do things. Um, because of some subliminal stimulus that they're not aware of, and you can manipulate people in this way. But, yeah, okay, somewhat, you know, people are not, you know, perfect. But most of the time, I think we've a pretty... But this, again, is about the extent to which this sort of metacognition marries, reflects the implicit cognition. And like Juliet, she she probably would think when she gives the the, the, the black student a lower mark than the, 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 the white student, mm-hmm. she probably thinks, yes, I did that because it was the fair mark to give. It wasn't as good an essay. Mm-hmm. Which is wrong it's not what right. um, and if she attended a little more closely to what it's a rationalization of something that's that's that uh, of a bias um, so uh, the, the, this is this peculiar thing again about being human that we have this 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 conscious level this level of, of self-reflection it seems to be really us. <laughs> And we kind of think that if you know, if the brain did it before this sort of conscious stuff kicked in, then it wasn't really me. And in a sense, this conscious stuff is um uh is me. It's that's the me I want to be. Mm-hmm. That's my that's the ideal I'm setting myself, that's who I want to be. But it doesn't mean I'm always there. Mm-hmm. Um and I'm everything else as well. I'm all the the, the, the the whole mass of habits and you know bad habits and everything. That's all me too. And it's this duality, I think, in us that is, uh, as I say, both the curse uh, and the, the blessing mm-hmm. of being human. We're animals who are aware of our own animal nature and are trying to control it and understand it. Um, and that's a funny thing to be. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. and I, That's I
2: why we with... have religion.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> pardon. S- but yeah, uh, I'm in full agreement with you. Uh, for example, say I had a, um, say I had a bad mood, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, something uh, occurs. Uh, Leon talked over me, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, uh, now I am um, I'm angry. And then I'll rationalize, oh, uh, it's mm-hmm. because Leon talked over me that I'm angry. But perhaps. I'm in a bad mood due to something else, perhaps some sort of chemical imbalance or something else that happened prior. Mm-hmm. And then this event that I, back, you know, because I had this filter of anger, uh, and this event that you know that occurred with you, uh, it's not necessarily true. This rationalization, uh, what's, I would say the rationalization is actually the most false thing of all. If anything, it's that that feeling that I have is true, but necessarily assigning it to you would not be. Oh, yeah. Would not be true. So it would be like displaced uh, anger? Mm. Uh, yeah, that's, an, that's one example. Mm-hmm. Uh, ps- say I, uh, um, I had a stomach ache, mm-hmm. and um, all of a sudden I, I feel, okay, uh, the stomach ache is because of this particular food that I ate before. Mm-hmm. But I could be wrong could be something else it could be anxiety I don't know if that's a fan. yeah it could be the anxiety. anxiety there right. you go mm-hmm. there so you we, go. we thank make, you for saying that you're actually. welcome
1: yeah. so we kind of make these quick interpretations right I think that's what you're saying yeah, yeah. right and then we should we're so yeah. a lot of times very certain of our interpretations and just by yeah. the way yeah. as a quick aside, this is the sort of flaw with psychoanalytic thought and just psychoanalysis as a whole as an endeavor so a lot of times what happens with therapy is that the therapist is sort of married to their interpretation of what the problem is and so what happens yeah. is a lot of times' yeah. we're are actually either wrong or it's more nuanced than we think. So we have this great explanation yeah. that sounds super logical and sounds incredibly reasonable, but it's either one of the reasons that's causing the problem or it's not the reason at all. So we have to really be careful of something making sense but not actually being true, or rather accepting something that makes sense but is not actually true.
3: Yeah.
2: yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we are we we are we are terrific rationalizers. Mm-hmm. Um, and indeed, uh, there's Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber have... Um, Uh, argued very quite persuasively i think that the function of the human reasoning system is to rationalize your beliefs it's to win arguments with people that's what it's for it's um well we we tell other we tell other we give information to other people We, we tell them things now it's very important that people can evaluate what we've told them am i giving reliable information and so for me to be treated as a reliable communicator, I need to be able to explain why that's true. I need to be able to provide reasons for it.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So I idea is that human reasoning is, the, the prime function of it is to provide reasons for things you believe mm-hmm. so that people can assess their, their, um, their, their um, how, they, how, how far they should trust them. It's not to critic, criticize what you believe. It's not to examine it for its truth. It's to defend it. And we are extraordinarily good at doing this. And one consequence of this, I think, is that we tend, as we provide reasons for the things we believe, we tend to then reinforce those beliefs to make them stronger, again, at the implicit level. Because the more reasons you have for something, the more you should believe it. So the more the habit becomes ingrained. And the danger is then that I think this sometimes happens when you get in a debate with someone, particularly, you know, with say an opponent. What you're actually doing, say on social media, on Twitter or whatever, Mm -hmm. you get in a debate with them what you're actually doing is prompting them to think up more reasons to believe what they already believe. (laughs) Interesting. And thereby entrenching that belief. it You're giving them a sort of mental workout. They say, what do you believe? And they say, oh, I believe this. Now, maybe that was just like an off-the-cuff thing, and they weren't really all that committed to it. But you say, oh, you can't believe that. That's terrible. They say, well, yes, I can, because... And they start listing reasons. And they start And as they list these reasons, they get more convinced it's true. Mm-hmm. So you're actually driving driving them into a, more, into a stronger commitment to that view than they had before. <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, maybe... I, I, I do worry that sometimes debate just serves as a workout for your opponent's, uh, uh, a mental workout for your for your opponent, yeah. rather than having any effect on on, on making the reflect. I don't think people reflect very well when they're challenged. And again, I, I, what you were saying there about um, about about therapists, I I expect that if you are in a position where your diagnosis, your interpretation is being treated as authoritative, you want to make sure it. it you know, it seems authoritative, so you find authoritative, authoritative. So you think up reasons for it. You want to, you're the expert, you should have reasons for it. So you start, you know, coming up with them. And it's always it's possible to find reasons for anything. Um, yeah. And thereby making your, your commitment to it stronger, making it more ingrained. Yeah. Um, so I, 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 I guess the moral of that is we all need to be to be less sure of ourselves. <laughs> um, and I think our, our style of debate we have this kind of sort of like forensic style of debate where we challenge each other and or whatever and, uh, and and we're expected to state our case and defend our case and be firm in our views and not be tentative and exploratory i think that's bad i think we're yeah. encouraging bad habits
1: and, Keith, I think our final question, which might be pretty much our, maybe our most important one, I think for the show especially, a good capstone, it would be according to your research in terms of like um, – so your research, your research in implicit and explicit bias. What do you find are the reasons why – I guess it has to be multiple, I think. What are sort of some of the major reasons or the reasons why people find it so difficult to change their belief systems?
2: Oh, gosh. Um, I think – you. Um, we're about to you examine to them. Let look. me just say,
1: examine them, not to make it so complicated. So how come they no, find I, it so I, hard I, to
2: examine? It's a, first of all, a lot of these belief systems are. I think you need to look at. There are many reasons. First of all, you need to look at why the, why the beliefs have been formed. I think certain belief systems are socially. Uh, not necessarily imposed, but they are. Belief is a way of of, of, of defining a community. The communities are often defined by the things they believe, yeah. and wanting to fit in with your community is an extremely important thing. And so, maybe the best one way to get people to question or to is to take them out of the community into another community where there's a different set of beliefs and standards, uh, a different set of standards and beliefs. If you're in an environment where everybody else believes something, it's very hard for you not to believe it, yep. because you just want to fit in. Uh, another reason is, I think, that our belief-forming systems are, you know, they're kind of inductive. They, they extrapolate from the evidence you've been presented with. Now, if you've been if you've been in a certain very, um, uh, if you have very limited experience of people of a of a different group or different. Uh, ethnic group or whatever it might be and if your experience of them has been very limited you might extrapolate on the basis of that very limited experience to the whole group and you need more experience to to form a fairer belief so it's these are not so what I'm I'm saying is it's the environment it's about the social and the the wider um, environment you've been exposed to And the one reason I think these are hard to to change is that beliefs are these kind of implicit. These are the basic mechanisms by which you function in the world. They're the things that get you around. Like the same when you're driving the car, you know where the controls are. That's how you drive the car. Your beliefs about and if you get in a different car with the controls are different, it's very difficult to do it because you need to have robust habits for getting around the world. You know, there may be bad habits, but they're the robust. They're the habits that get you through the day, as it were. And these are hard to change. These are the sort of default settings that you have. Um, and it, it's very important, I think, that these should be fairly consistent because you don't want to be, if you're in a certain community everybody believes it, you don't want to be waking up each day and having a different set of attitudes each day, changing your mind continually. You won't fit in. Your, people won't find you reliable. They won't know how to, uh, what to expect of you. Uh, they will be disappointed in you. They'll be angry with you. You, know, you need to sort of get the settings right for the environment you're in. Mm. and and this I, I'm, I'm, I guess what I'm sketching there's a sort of evolutionary kind mm-hmm. of perspective on this the evolutionist you know, equipped us with a bunch of sort of belief forming systems that form beliefs that work in the setting you're in
3: mm-hmm.
2: and so changing that setting is probably the best way and make giving people incentives to realize that these this bunch of you know default attitudes they have are not the only ones that are possible and in fact probably not good ones, especially if you get in a wider community.
1: Right. So So, beliefs are adaptive.
2: Oh, absolutely. I think Mm -hmm. so. I mean, I think, oh, the belief-forming mechanisms are adaptive. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that individual beliefs are adaptive, but the mechanisms. Nature's trying to equip you with a bunch of uh, beliefs that will allow you to get by. And if you're in a community where everybody believes in a certain thing, it's adaptive to go along with it. Otherwise, you're going to be... How you're going to have to fight all the time?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You're going to be continually, you know, uh, having confrontations. Uh, I mean, one reason I say this is this isn't to excuse it, but it's to it's to understand that our, our minds are kind of not transparent and not completely under our con- own control. We have to. This is the thing about self shaping It's hard to to change your outlook, and you need to work at it. you need to be motivated to do it and inspired to do it indeed Mm -hmm. and it's a process that's going to take time and that's both a little bit discouraging but also positive i think because if you understand that it's a challenging process it's like say losing weight or anything else you've got to work at it if you understand that it's going to take time then you won't be discouraged if you find that you're slipping back occasionally and it's not as easy as you thought
3: Absolutely. No, of course.
0: It's so, a the, it's a process of uh, trial and error, and you know, for yeah. anyone uh, listening, not to be discouraged if there's any sort of failure, yeah. because um, yeah. it's 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 a process that other people have undertaken yes. before and been able to make changes. And when you see that other people were able to make changes as well, you can yes. sort of have a, a sort of faith that that can happen with you as well, even if. There's a a failure here and then. Even with many things that I try to do nowadays, like I I try to read um, uh, more, like at least an hour a day, Mm -hmm. uh, at least nowadays. Mm -hmm. It it used to be much less than that, the frequency. Mm -hmm. And so there's sometimes I fail, and then there's other times where I succeed Mm -hmm. and... Uh, more often than not, I do succeed in reading. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I'm not discouraged the times that I don't. I have faith that I'm going to attempt this again and then perhaps even excel to another level with that. Mm -hmm. And then other endeavors as well. Yeah,
2: Yeah. 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 Absolutely. All right.
0: All right. So, Alan? Oh, uh, Keith, there's this new thing that we're doing. Leon's not aware that I'm about to ask this question. (laughs) 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 Uh, I wanted to ask, if there was let's say uh, a message that you wanted to pass on, let's say to the world, something, something that, oh, um, something that you wish that everyone knew, uh, for instance, uh, what would you like that to be? And uh, no, no pressure. We can always uh, adjust that question.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh gosh. Oh. There are the obvious things that everyone knows that, uh, you know, that, life is short, and that it's strange, it's bizarre, it's weird, and the only way to get through it is by helping each other. I mean, that's the thing that I've learned. Life is incredibly short, um, and it's love and cooperation and human contact that makes any sense of it at all. More specifically, I would say, try to... Under that that's just a sort of general, but more specifically, I say tr- try to understand what kind of a thing <laughs> you are. Try to understand how your mind works. Try to understand w- how your brain works. The, our vision of ourselves, the vision that we have kind of introspectively, if you like, this kind of idea we have of ourselves, it's it's kind of made up. <laughs> it's it's not the reality there is a lot more to you than this the way you you envision yourself for positive or negative there's a lot more stuff going on you have a lot you have more control than you think in some directions and less control than you think in other directions and when you understand this understand exactly who you are and what you are you have a better idea i think you have you are fairer to yourself for one thing you don't necessarily expect so much from yourself and you understand the ways in which you can be better and in trying to be better don't just look at yourself look at other people look at the people who inspire you look at the people you love look at the people who you want to be better for um and let them help you yeah uh can't do it all yourself
1: absolutely i love that wow all right keith thank you so so much for coming on today what an insightful
2: show thank you well i hope so <laughs> no, oh, of course. and
1: so Keith if we wanted to find you or your work where can we find you online
2: you can find my website it's keithfrankish.com mm-hmm. just one word dot com. and there's various stuff on there um there's e-prints of some of my articles even some bits of few, even a few limericks on there so yeah
1: and if we <laughs> wanted to find you on social media where would that be
2: the best place to find me is twitter mm-hmm. because i'm always tweeting yeah uh, it's basically what i do when i should be doing something else is i go on twitter mm-hmm. and i joke or uh, ask questions or so you can find me at, again it's just at mm-hmm. keith frankish word Excellent. and uh, yeah no, it's it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me again. It's it's a great pleasure talking to you both. Yeah, was, I was very, very happy
3: with this episode. <laughs> so thank I you so really, much.
2: I like what you're doing with this podcast. I think you're doing a great thing. Um I've listened to one or two of the other episodes and I, I think you're doing a good thing and I wish you the, the very best with this. I think you you're it's a great initiative and you're having a great effect and uh, keep it up and do more of it. Thank you so, thank much, you so Keith, much so much. So Keith.
0: much. Please come on again and be well. See you next time.
2: Bye bye. Uh,
0: all right. Guys, that was cool. That was an awesome episode. Very we, good. By the way, behind the scenes, we had some camera issues uh, before we started. But we'll have that fixed next time. Mm-hmm. If anything, guys, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on, on Facebook and on Instagram and at C- Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Yep. Uh, remember to subscribe.
3: Hit the bell. Hit the bell. And see on, YouTube, you, on YouTube. On YouTube. On YouTube. We'll see you guys next week. See you next week.